Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Hey everyone, it's Dimitri. I'm the sound engineer and editor of the podcast, and today's just going to be a little different. Firstly, Ba is feeling a little under the weather, so I'm filling in for him just on the introduction. Secondly, today we have John Krieger, a public high school teacher who pioneers the use of holistic teaching methods in what would typically be considered a non-holistic setting. His brainchild, the Personal Creed Project, was developed in his second year of teaching to promote self-discovery and knowledge. Years later in 2001, Krieger was given the James Moffat Memorial Award for Teacher Research in recognition of his work. Having published articles in many prestigious education journals, Krieger offers presentations and seminars to universities and education conventions to broaden the impact of his project and change the lives of students across the country. For more information, head over to www.personalcreed.com. For now, let's get into the podcast. Welcome, John. Good to hear your voice. Oh, thanks. It's uh, good to be heard. All right. So, John, you are a public school teacher, which is a little bit unusual for this podcast and puts you in a rather special place as far as I'm concerned, because frankly, we don't find a lot of public school work that really matches up to kind of a profound holistic approach. So give us some background uh, on you in terms of your public school life and also how you came into the project that is uh, so exciting to all of us. I, uh, I attended public high school and uh, graduated with less than a clue about who I was <laughs> and uh, what, what, I was, uh, what I was about, what I wanted. Uh, how I wanted to contribute. Um, some of it had to do with the chaos of the late 60s. But, uh, you know, I look back and I, I realize, and this, these are things I've only recently in the last five to ten years realized about what it was that kind of prompted me to become the kind of teacher I've become. Six people I grew up with uh, are dead now. Um, and, um, arising from choices they made, some of them back then when we were young, uh, some of them, the most recent one died as a homeless drug addict in, uh, I think a five years or so ago. And, uh, so I think I only recently, uh, began to connect, uh, those deaths of, of friends to, uh, to what I've been about, uh. And uh, so, fast forward many years later, uh, in my in my thirties, um, after um, I guess I like to say hitting a lot of speed bumps with my nose uh, through my twenties in life, um, I, I I had the chance to uh, discover a lot about who I was and why I was here. Uh, at least begin to fi- find some uh, preliminary answers to questions like that in my 20s but uh I hit the classroom as a teacher in my in my 30s I kind of have had what I now now think of as a, a post traumatic delayed or maybe post traumatic intuitive response to my own high school education and uh, I think what I started doing at a very intuitive not particularly conscious level is try to teach in a way so that my students would not wind up as clueless as I did. I, I think I tried, um, again, not consciously, on a gut level, to teach in a way that would help my students find out something about who they were as part of their learning in school. Well, that's that's very moving, John. Thank you. Um, I... I uh, that you it's interesting to me that so many of my deep educators that come onto this program really didn't hit stride until their 30s and were really self-reflective about their early life and you've just given us a really great example of that. 
So let's jump in then. So what did you come up with? Well, you know, there's one more piece of that, Bob. And, uh, oh, please. That, that has to do with the, the time, uh, the period in which I, I came into teaching. I came into teaching in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, as you probably know, this was, even in, in public education, this was a period of, of great um, experimentation, at least in the circles that I found myself falling into. Uh, we had uh, James Moffat, the great literacy pioneer, and uh, others like him and others influenced by him in the late 80s, early 90s in the field of uh, English teaching uh, secondary English, particularly in college. Excuse English. me a second, John, yes. but I've been, I was on conferences with James Moffat. We were up on the uh, podium together and we no had kidding. some wonderful conversations uh, oh, offline, so to speak. That's very exciting. I don't know if you know his friend, uh, Tom Gage. Tom Gage. Uh, of Tom Gage. I don't know him personally, no. Uh, it, he was, uh, uh, he and Moffat were best friends and and Tom's been a mentor of mine. I never knew Moffat, uh, but I've I've been uh, very much. Uh, I think he's mentored me. You know, even after he died, because I started reading his books. Uh, uh, actually, I was in my I was in the night. I was at probably eight or ten years into my career when I started reading his uh, his well, his last book, which was was called uh, the Universal Schoolhouse. Uh, yes, the spirit. Universal Schoolhouse. Yes, a groundbreaking book, and Absolutely. I would hope all of our listeners, if they can, pick it up. He was just a wonderful man, no Absolutely. question about it. Thank you for bringing him up. It's really great to have his energy on this podcast. Oh man, no, you know something? I was, I just, I got to tell you this. I, I, I just um, now. Here's let's fast forward to today. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of Yong Zhao. No, I haven't. Yang Zhao uh, is a is a professor of education, and now he's at University of Kansas. He he was at University of Oregon, actually. Um, born in China, educated in China, and um, came here and uh, worked his way as to become a professor. He's um, he's a very fine speaker. Very, I'll send you a link. He's he's funny. He's a stand up comedian, and he says he was a failed Chinese farmer who had no alternative but to become a professor in, in America. Um, and uh, he, he really, in this five-minute video that I actually had my students uh, watch and do their first writing on Friday, uh, he really is channeling Moffat in a big way. Uh, you know, about the school, uh, the, the community should be the school, and uh, we should be developing um, the whole child. He doesn't quite use that language. But um, it is very, very Moffat uh, that uh, that he's coming through. He's quite close with Diane Ravitch. I don't know if you know Diane Ravitch. Uh, you, I, I know of her. I'm, I have mixed feelings about Diane Ravitch, but we don't need to go into that right now. I'd love to hear more about that sometime. But uh, anyway, uh, Moffat and um, and Young Zhao are on the same page, and I'm having my students now um, being exposed to Young Zhao. And I want them exposed to the uh, the danger that public schools are facing in the privatization movement. I want them to uh, learn to think, but I would like them to use this content as something to wrestle with. Great. Well, let's jump into your work because I am fascinated by it, and I just wonderful that you do that in a public in the public high school. So, go ahead and give us give us a pretty good detailed conversation about your work and the Creed Project and um, and just kind of its history as well. All right. Well, one thing that was true in the late 80s, early 90s uh, is, is that reflection was actually a mode of, of writing, one of the modes of writing that was not only just encouraged, but we were expected in California, largely because of James Moffat, actually, we were expected to to give our students some exposure to reflective writing, along with argumentative writing and uh, persuasive writing. Those were categories back then. Reflective writing was something we were we were encouraged to do. Uh, unfortunately, that went by the wayside after the '90s and the, the high stakes testing and the um, politicization of of uh, 
school and accountability and all those things. But so reflection, I was delighted in my early years of teaching in the credential program to discover that reflection was something that I could actually encourage my students to do. I, I got my credential through the Bay Area Writing Project, which, uh, again, Moffitt was very instrumental in setting up the National Writing Project and uh, the um, affiliates, state affiliates of the National Writing Project. And the one at uh, UC Berkeley was the Bay Area Writing Project. And uh, I did my, my student teaching uh, in Oakland and then uh, moved to, to Fremont, where I've been teaching ever since. And there were uh, people who came to our credential program who were very much involved in reflective writing. And the, the example of that that I think probably didn't consciously sink in as a, as a model, but unconsciously it was part of the environment that I found myself in when I became a teacher. It was called the eye search. The eye search. In other words, the idea was to search, you know, your, yourself and to, to, to discover what you could in, in, in doing a research project about yourself. I think it was a little bit more uh, research-oriented in terms of what am I going to do with my life more than who am I. Uh, but it was Lowry Fisher, who was with the Bay Area Writing Project and is still teaching uh, at a community college in the area here. I, I never got to know him, but he was just an example of the kind of uh, reflective project that... Uh, I think gave me a green light um, somehow. And uh, again, I don't know how conscious I was of this, but I, I, I had this urge, my second year teaching, which was uh, 88, 89. Uh, I went to my principal and with a draft of this thing, and I already had called it the Personal Creed Project. And um, I said, hey, is this, uh, can I run this? And um, he um, he just said, "Yeah, but let's stay in touch about it." <laughs> uh, so it was a it was a way. Uh, my urge was to find a way for them to discover what they valued as part of their their learning, as part of their their their, their course. And there was also a thing at the time called values clarification. It was a, a kind of a movement. There were a book or some books about it. And I think I might have been somewhat, uh, again, another sense, another green light came from from that, although it somehow didn't strike me as what I was uh, wanting to, to create with them. Josette and I wrote a uh, games book about that that turned out to be a bestseller. You wrote a what? <laughs> Just a games book about values clarification that turned out to be a bestseller. And is now, just now, we just uh, received the contract to put it in its third edition. It's a games? Well, you mean games in the classroom kind of thing? Games in the classroom, games on the playground, games everywhere, games among family, all kinds of games. That's interesting. 150 of them. Really, I think I need, and, and yeah. uh, is this for um, something that would would work in secondary education? It works. It works for everything. There's a lot of mixed age games. It works for everyone. I mean, values clarification is an important part of knowing who we are. That's interesting. And uh, I, from from my exposure to the values clarif- the book that was called Values Clarification, I don't th- that that wasn't your book, was it? I don't think so. No, no. This is just games. Just games. That's okay. all it was. Just, so, just games. Somehow the, the approach that was taken in the book, I can't tell you how it didn't resonate fully with me, but I just knew what I wanted them to do was, since, I, since this is an English class, I wanted them to, to reflect on their lives and extensively and comprehensively and over a long period of time and then come up with values that were unquestionably ones their life had been teaching them. I wanted them to become... You know, con- at, at, as a developmentalist, this is just, it's perfect timing. The the person in the uh, that you're dealing with, the, the child you're dealing with, desperately needs to know themselves. They're desirous tremendously to know themselves. 
And like you and like me, we didn't get much guidance in that. So to have an opportunity to explore that, it's just so developmentally right on. It's just fantastic. Yeah, and I um, well, I have to I have to um, acknowledge that there were certain green lights, as I've mentioned, that that made this uh, something that okay, I can do this. Uh, it made it, it okay. It, it uh, at the okay. same at the same time. Let's this, jump I, into the specifics, though. Let's sure. jump. Let's get those specifics down. That's what I know our listeners love to hear. Okay, so, so it, what are we doing? I'm a sophomore. I come into your class. Yeah. What happens? Okay. So uh, this work begins to shift in in the second quarter. Uh, the first quarter, uh, I don't I don't think kids are ready to jump into something this personal and this deep right away. And plus, I'd rather lay the groundwork. If you don't mind me laying the groundwork a little bit first before you get the specifics. No, go ahead. Please. All right. Well, the the first thing they encounter is my second baby, which is the World Wisdom Project, and the World Wisdom Project consists of a, a range of short poems and stories from um, Zen Buddhism, Taoist anecdotes, the Bible, the Quran, um, various Hindu texts, a uh, lot of Rumi, um, and uh, uh, we have uh, some, we have poems from Langston Hughes, Jimmy Santiago Baca, Pretty much everyone in my classroom and their cultures are represented in these short readings, all of which open up the idea of wisdom as as a, as a study. And uh, we'll we'll come back to that. The cultivation of wisdom is is one of the design principles that I've now realized is what my courses are about. And I teach teachers this these design principles. So laying the groundwork for the personal creed project with the world. Wisdom Project, introducing the whole idea of wisdom more generally uh, across the board and having, helping students connect with wisdom through oftentimes their own cultures, right? We have a lot of Asians, we have African-American students, Hispanic students, um, we have students who have Christian backgrounds, Muslim backgrounds, Hindu, Buddhist backgrounds, and uh, all of their cultures are represented in the World Wisdom Project. So we do these short readings. I introduce uh, uh, skills, uh, uh, the skills of inquiry, the skills of extracting uh, quotations, and most of all, inquiry. And uh, I actually have been reading, Ba, your uh, principles of natural learning relationships. And uh, I'm telling you, just this morning, I was realizing, oh, my God, on some, uh, the, the inquiry is very important in this this uh, developmental stage, inquiry and um, what you call ideal, uh, ideals, I, I, I call discovery of values. These are the two, two yeah, principles. Now you want me to get more concrete? <laughs> well, that's, that's great. I mean, that's, when I when I saw what your work was about, I realized, oh my gosh, this could be done in a public school. And to be sure, I was skeptical skeptical a little bit about that. And yet here you are, and I love your selection. I love your introduction of the word wisdom. Josette and I use it quite often in our work, and we even talk about wisdom-based relationships with children. And you have just introduced that as a real event in these kids' life, and it's just great. Thank you. So, it, yes, it's I, almost a subversive word in our culture. You you hear that word very very little, and uh, you almost have to you know it's like reflection. Uh, it takes the kids literally when we finally uh, anyway. Uh, so they we build a lot of skills. I mean, um, you know whether you call it <laughs> the laundry list of no child left behind skills or the more focused lists of Common Core. In state standards um, in this wisdom project, they not only learn about wisdom, but they're they're, they're learning uh, about developing ideas, uh, supporting ideas, developing arguments. They're learning to read critically. Um, all the things that um, the various luminaries want, um, we're loading them up with that stuff. And there's another leg of curriculum, which I like to call. Uh, I like to, to identify the, the personal leg, but we can get into that later because you're still wanting to hear about the Personal Creed Project. Uh, okay, so after this 
groundwork has been laid in the World Wisdom Project. Then at the beginning of second quarter, they get this very thick packet, the scariest looking project they've ever seen, because it's I think it's about 24 pages. Um, and uh, it uh, it's systematically week we they it, it, these are weekly reflections that weave into any English course, and uh, they can be the project can be tailored to any English course. Um, and in the full-blown version, in high school, we can run a full-blown version because we have an entire year with our students. They, uh, the first week of reflections is what I call background circumstances or maybe your desktop, the desktop of your life. You know, when you open up your computer, these are the icons that are on your desktop, right? And it has to do with your uh, – and you choose. Your, the, the basic method of the, of the creed reflections is listing – uh, selecting and reflecting. So they first list uh, with a, they have a bunch of um, options listed at, at the top of the instruction page. Maybe you know the the, the neighborhood you've grown up in, um, your gender, your ethnic background, uh, the the culture that you come from, the, your um, generation you're from. Uh, these are background circumstances that you didn't choose. They're just there when you when you wake when you open your eyes and start growing up, um, and so you choose three to five of these background circumstances that have been most influential on you, and you write a paragraph about how each one has impacted you. So again, it's the idea of casting a wide net. Uh, you know, I cast a wide net with I gave them maybe twenty thirty possibilities. They choose three to five, and or actually they choose five to 10, make a list, and then they narrow it down further by selecting from that list three to five most significant influences in this particular category. First week, background circumstances. And they do that, and it, mm-hmm. that doesn't take them more than an hour. And, um, and we're doing everything else in the normal public school academic curriculum. Then second week, it's... Um, Specific activities, uh, more more thing, things that may be uh, turning points, maybe health, maybe involvement in athletics, or even even spiritual life. Your 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 background, your family, religious or your personal spiritual experience could be in there. And you know, traveling that you've done, um, mistakes that were made by you or others that have affected your life. But these are more uh, actions. And there's a whole long uh, laundry list of possibilities. Again, 20, 20, 25 of those, you pick five to 10, then narrow it down further, three to five. And for each one of those, you you write a paragraph. How has, uh, uh, let's say, my parents' divorce um, affected me? And uh, mm-hmm. how, I'm with you. How has how has my uh, how has the traveling that uh, that we've done uh, affected me? Um, how has uh, my my involvement in uh, in baseball affected me? You know, so they're they zero in on that. Now the, it's taken them two weeks to kind of get over the the strangeness of being asked to reflect on their lives in school. In public school, this is not something we do since since the '90s. It hasn't really been done in any wide scale, and and they're they're just a little bit uh, spooked by this. And we talk about it because I know they're going to be spooked by it. Uh, but it, after two three weeks, they're they're starting to feel more comfortable with it, and uh, so that's when we introduce people, which is a category that most of us are influenced by uh, significantly, and so they. They have a big long list of well, family, you know, parents, siblings, friends, uh, celebrities, neighbors, strangers, and uh, they again make a cast a wide net, bring a few fish out of the net, and reflect on on those uh, most significant three to five most significant people in their lives, and then the project next week goes a little deeper. And I didn't consciously design it this way. Consciously, but students have told me most of what I've learned in, about this whole thing has come from students' reactions to what, what they've experienced in my class. But then the following week is uh, questions. What questions are, are actually, whether you know it or not, are driving you? 
Um, and, and so we, we reflect on how questions have, might be influencing us. The, third, uh, the, the fourth week then, or fifth week, I'm sorry, is qualities. Now we're going deeper. You, you develop an inventory of your own personal qualities. And I give some examples, uh, positive and negative. One of the instructions that keeps repeating week by week is make sure to put in some less than positive influences in your lists uh, for sure and you know, in your reflections if possible. Because it's it's good. I told them it's going to be important later to have some less than positive influences for you to think about. Not don't just make everything too rosy. <laughs> and some kids have no problem. Most a lot of kids have no problem whatever with that. Um, some of them are a little shy about writing about difficult things, and I, I'm encouraging them to do that. Then we um, actually the next week's reflections were spurred by Rian Eisler who uh, I think you've interviewed as well. And r- I had a delightful experience, and I've written about this. I'm not sure if you've seen the recent article I wrote for her uh, newsletter. But I had the t- opportunity to show for Rianne uh, to a- an event where she was speaking, and I was also running a small workshop. And I told her about the project. She was very interested in encouraging. But she said, John, this is wonderful, but you have nothing on gender roles in this project. And I kind of fell to right away and almost saluted her and said, yes, ma'am. And uh, I now we have a week's week reflection on gender roles, which is very appropriate now. Five years ago, six years ago, at the beginning, uh, when she first had inspired me to put this in there, it was a little awkward for them. They Gender roles, is that really relevant for us? But now with gender fluidity and, um, you know... Uh, the, the kinds of uh, issues that were that, that are normal today, uh, it's really right in the pocket today. So uh, that's that's the the casting of the wide net part of the project. Now mm-hmm. we try now now it's time to see what's in the net and focus it um, a little bit. So now they create a short list across all these, I believe it's six categories, and they, they, they pick the three to five most significant influences across all these categories. That could be background circumstances, um, specific activities, people, questions, qualities, gender roles. Any of, they pick the three to five most powerful influences in their lives, and now they've got a short list. And and then we go deeper with that short list. Why does this influence deserve to be on your short list? Uh, what about it? Is is that significant in your life? And then I ask them to think metaphorically about each of these influences on their short list. They create a metaphor uh, that that resonates with them about this. So they're they're getting deeper with their short list. And then we after they've they've kind of claimed their short list to some degree and through various activities um and it sounds like some of your uh games would be appropriate in here i'm i'm interest, interested in poaching some of your ideas i think uh, then we start going into a series of 3 weeks in which they they turn a corner from influences to values so which is of your shortlist influences, which one do you value the most? And I'm not saying which has had the greatest impact on you, but which do you value the most? And which do you value the least? And this gives them a chance to start thinking about their values, their ideals, I think, in, in, in the language that, that I've seen, a little bit I've seen of, of your writing. And I asked them, okay, so if you most value your Uncle Harry and you least value your parents' divorce, what does that suggest about what you value? And uh, mm-hmm. most of them begin to come up with, uh, with some preliminary sense of what they might value. And uh, then we go into two final weeks of, of that section of the project in which they really do identify what they value. 
Can you give us just um, kind of quickly here uh, some examples of what they value, what values they have come up with? Mm-hmm. Well, um, many of them will will, will identify um, compassion as a value that they've been they, they've been taught, or honesty. Um, you know, if they've gone through, if the family's gone through a divorce because parents weren't honest with one another, sometimes that's a great lesson in in honesty. Um, yeah. Um, that's, this is just great stuff to, to our listeners for a second. I'm sure, you know, usually I'm jumping in and much more interactive, but I just think that this is so very important. And especially because, as I said in the beginning, we don't have a public school expression that actually works in this day and age to allow teens and young teens to come to their own through self-inquiry. These are, these are words that are just so, so important through self-inquiry, through uh, reflection on their own life, to participation um, in, those, in those events in their life, and to be able to distill it as to what's important to them. I, I'm just so impressed with it. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, and I love them, and I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. Today's teaching story is entitled, Hidden Depths. One day, the wise fool was in the market and saw birds for sale at $500 each. My bird, he thought, which is larger than any of these, is worth far more. The next day, he took his pet hen to market. Nobody would offer him more than $50 for it. Then the wise fool began to shout, Oh, people, this is a disgrace. Yesterday you were selling birds only half this size at ten times the price. Someone interrupted him. You fool, those were parrots, talking birds. They are worth more because they talk. Fool, said the wise fool. Those birds you value only because they can talk. This one which has wonderful thoughts and yet does not annoy anyone with chatter, you reject. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators, and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue, as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. I have to tell you, John, usually I do not let people go on for quite so long, but I myself am just thrilled and enthralled by this project. It's just great. Well, thank, thank you, you so I, I, much for putting it together. I really appreciate I tell you. the feedback. I- and I do speak... I do speak to public school teachers. I speak to all kinds of teachers. I'll be in uh, North Carolina at the Rainbow School. Josette and I are the keynotes there in the beginning of October. Nice. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to mention you in this there. Um, That's a more holistic gathering, but I just can't see where any school, any teacher wouldn't value this and and try to bring it forward. Well, thank you. I'm... um... I'm in, I'm interested in getting on the road as much as possible with this. Uh, it's taken me a long time, Bob, to be honest, um, to be comfortable promoting um, what I do. I mean, I, I've I've been really as someone who's worked in the classroom developing this stuff. It's so exciting for me. It's so exciting. Maybe for- you need to do a personal creed project about your own values as to why it's taken you so long to make this public. Oh, okay. Well, I think uh, I beat you to that. And I'll, can I tell you? Can I tell you the story of how I started doing that? Okay. Okay. This was uh, 
I took a I took a leave of um, absence in the mid '90s to go to graduate school, and I, when I had a chance to do some thinking about all this, and realized, well, I have to interrupt for just a second. Again and again, that's what I hear of the teachers and the educators who have been on this podcast. I took a break and I went back to graduate school to do further reflection. I think it's almost everyone I've spoken to. That's interesting. It is. It is interesting. And and when I came back, I was hoping that my, you know, a district would would let me go back to the same school because when I was in graduate school, as exciting intellectually and even spiritually as graduate school was for me, I kept thinking about this place, American High School in Fremont, California, where where I'd spent 8 years, my first 8 years of my career, and it was so exciting to think about going back there and have and and being in this classroom situation when I could experiment and they could tell me how things were were working I just wanted to get back there just being around them was so exciting to me and I eventually did get back to American um and I got back and I'm I'm getting to my story now I I got back uh because a colleague was retiring and so I was going to take over for her mid-year and uh coming I was coming back from grad school and so uh, I subbed for her a couple of times, <laughs> and uh, I uh, first day I went to, in to sub for her, this kid walks into the classroom late, and uh, he has kind of a swagger about him, an attitude about him, and I had an out-of-body experience, so sometimes I don't really know why I do what I do, um, and I just sometimes just follow my gut without really knowing, and I took him in the corner. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. And I said, listen, you and I are going to become good friends. And until then, I don't want any attitude out of you. And I couldn't believe I was saying to this, this kid. I mean, you know, he was, you know, probably could have beat the hell out of me if he wanted to. He was kind of big. And, uh, but at, sure enough, my wife and I danced at his wedding <laughs> a few years later. Wow. And, um, uh, and and this was the kid, you know, we, we, we got a really good relationship going because it was, I don't know, I guess I started us off on a real clear foot. I don't think he'd had a whole lot of father influence in his life. And I just kind of like stepped up and said, this is the way it's going to be. And he liked it. But anyway, it was Michael Febo who, here I am introducing the project, getting that fired up again after two and a half years of being in grad school. And I'm um, having the kids do all this reflecting and I'm sitting on my teacher's desk, and Michael raises his hand and says, Mr. Krieger, you're making us do all this creed stuff, the creed reflections. Mr. Krieger, what's your creed? And I'm on the spot. I'm sitting there. That's great. That's exactly how it should be, and it yeah. shows your openness to your own students. Uh, it just comes through so clearly. I, I, I wrap my fingers around my knee, you know, and I lean back sitting on my teacher's desk, and I kind of try to play it cool. I say, well, my creed, huh? Let me, let me tell you about that. And I improvised it. I just fell flat on my face. It just made a complete knucklehead out of myself. And that night I went home and I started writing and I said, that's never going to happen again. In fact, I'm going to present, I'm going to be the first presenter every year. And I've been the first presenter. And uh, I got to tell you something I read in your writings that really inspired me and resonated this morning. I'm reaching for my printout here. Um, you have a thing when you talk about adult and child developing together. And you say, yes. that by providing for the stage-specific needs of the child, adults come to greater health and contact with their own well-being. So you say, properly responding to the expressions of the organizing principle in young people can often precipitate a simultaneous development in adults. And, you know, we had our childhood limitations, you go on to say. So what Michael Febo did for me was give me permission, kind of like James Moffat did, uh, to develop as part of my students' experience. So I present my creed every, every spring, and I update it every spring because I don't want to give them some cookie-cutter thing. I, I actually reconsider my creed. And I have a you know a, a, a slideshow for them. Um, I'm a musician, so I, I include some of my music in the in the in the show. And uh, I'm the first one to present. And 
it's huge in my own development, in my own uh, uh, my, my my life. I have the uh, this is an opportunity for me to develop, and I want to start pitching that when I present to teachers. I want to. I, I think I really you're, you're you're reminding me that this is part of the experience, an opportunity for me to grow um, myself as part of helping them grow. And I, I thank you, and I do want to remind everyone that Josette uh, did a podcast in which she went so deeply into that relationship between how we mutually develop, how development is bi-directional, and the opportunities that we have. And that's just a great example of it. I, I'm... <laughs> you're a natch man you are a natch that's a natural teacher moment let me tell you well i'll tell you i'll tell you that you know i mean i i work uh you know and you're reminding me in in uh and i'm a big proponent of public schools um but i but in a, in a way public schools are the belly of the beast in that all of the um misguided uh ideas and practices of uh you know uh, education, education corporations, and politicians—all of these uh, are brought to bear on us, and and they—they—they uh, they, they really have have done a number in the last twenty years on on the level of consciousness in public education. Um, so the idea that that uh, this is a revolutionary idea for me to share with public education teachers that we ourselves naturally can grow alongside our students if we provide the right kind of environment. I mean, you're, you're giving me some fire here. <laughs> I, I feel like... Oh, I I, 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 I'm on fire about it too, John. This is what, this is what it's about and, and what you've done here. And I, I taught it, I have taught at the Portland State Graduate School here for education. And I ran a short uh, seminar on burnout and everyone thought, well, burnout was about, you know, go home and rub your cat or, you know, have a drink or see your wife or whatever. But when we got into it and we really looked and self-reflected and did inquiry, burnout every single time was about, I don't have time to have a real relationship with my students. I came into this because I realized that the interpersonal interaction was meaningful for me. And because of the large class size and what you're calling the corporate influences and so on, I just can't seem to get a place where I have a genuine relationship. And I feel like here in what you're describing, there's at least an opportunity for that relationship to unfold and for the teacher to be nurtured in the moment of our profession. And I just think that's the, so important because there's so many great teachers. There's huge resistance to it. Just just the other day in our, our first department meeting of the year, you know, I, I try not to be a blowhard in our department meetings. I try to, you know, keep quiet most of the time. Uh, but but when, you know, when the senior team in our English team is creating a senior project, finally after all these years, and it has no personal element in it, it's only about, you know, your analysis of literature and all, um, I do speak up, and sometimes we have dust-ups. <laughs> and uh, we had a dust-up the other day after one of my colleagues who teaches seniors says, "It's I can see this personal stuff in the ninth and 10th grade, but in 11th and 12th grade, it's just not about them anymore. She said that. And uh, wow, that's that's what we're I, that's with. that's one of the reasons I can't do the public school world because I don't think I'd have the patience to to sit through that meeting. Well, that's, I that's I, a, I did. That's a rough moment my, for the, my buttons, where I live. My buttons were pushed, and uh, they know it. But <laughs> the thing is, I, I have uh, I have allies though, and uh, one of them is the department chair who runs the Creed Project. And another one is a newer teacher who also runs. We've had uh, years, Bob, when 85% of our sophomores went through the project. Wow. Gee. Well, listen, you, you know, I, I, I am conscious of the time and the length our listeners do listen. And you said you had, uh, you, there was another project. Was that the personal history project? And if you could speak about that super quickly, I'm sorry to be rushing you, but I am 
have to be sensitive to what our listeners, uh, you know, their time sense as well. Sure, absolutely. And then it all comes together in the Global Citizen Project. So run us through this really pretty quickly, John. Sure. Uh, to try to get out the, uh, the, the kind of learning that's possible with projects like the Personal Creed Project, I've done some thinking about how to talk about it with colleagues. And I've come up with the idea of two-legged curriculum. The idea of having a, an academic leg and a personal leg. And that's a nice, simple idea that resonates. Uh, so I, uh, I collaborate with a history teacher, and uh, he teaches world history. I teach 10th uh, grade English, and we have the same kids. He has, I have a fifth period. We each have a fifth period, and then sixth period, uh, we swap. So that's two groups of kids. We came up, so he came up with the personal history project, which is his version of the personal creed project, except they examine four significant um, events in their own lives, and they reflect on that and make a presentation. At the same time in the year, when my students, actually the same students, are reflecting on what they value. Um, so that's the personal history project. This happens in a different class um, for the same students, concurrent to the personal creed uh, presentations. And the presentations are really when the students experience the project in the most dramatic way. I'd like to invite you, Ba, and anyone listening to uh, come and observe personal creed uh, presentations in my classroom or any classroom around the country where they're happening, because that's really when it's most obvious that something profound and transformational is going on. Uh, the last so, thing. so we didn't say that earlier. So the culmination is they present this to the other students. That's right. No, that we didn't say that. That's really where it all it all comes down because then you have the social the social experience, which is much more uh, dramatic and impactful on many students than the written experience. That's just fantastic. So let me just get this straight. You said around the country. So there's a, how many places around the country are doing the Personal Creed Project? In my dreams, a lot more than um, probably in reality. <laughs> fair enough. Yes, yeah. fair but, enough. Um, I, I am making attempts now with a, a website I have up, and I definitely would like to share that at some point with your listeners. But you asked me about the Global Citizens Project. I'll just say a couple words about that if I could. Uh, it please. It, it's a joint project. It's a. Uh, we just started that. Wally Wally Nuri, my uh, colleague in the history uh, department, uh, and I started that project last year. And the idea is for them to um, identify a global issue and zero in on a problem that uh, is part of that global issue and research and present solutions. Uh, so that and and doing so with a mind to their personal creeds, that's the Global okay. Citizens Project. And uh, did I? Did you want me to say more about the presentations? Um, no, I think I think we have it. I think you've named it exactly right. That the social aspect of saying that in front of people has a has another level of power that just reinforces all the good work that uh, that you've done with that. So let me ask you just kind of a last question here about your future. What do you envision for yourself, and how are we going to get this out more into the world? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm now uh, in my third year, fourth year of teaching uh, 80%. Uh, instead of teaching five classes a day, I teach four. And I'm devoting um, myself to uh, building a, a an outreach of seminars. Uh, I think the best thing, what I want to do, and this is at my students' urging, I want more students around the country, in high school and college, to have the opportunity to experience this project. So the best way for me to do that, I'm now convinced, is to get speaking engagements so I can speak to rooms of teachers, principals, superintendents, and tell them about the project so I can do seminars on uh, for districts, for schools, so that I think that's the quickest way for me to get this project into the lives of, of more students. So I'm building my uh, I'm building a signature talk. I'm learning how to uh, approach um, 
to find more stages to speak on, even though, you know, this, uh, it was not my idea of, of, of fun to, to, to promote my work. I'm learning to do it, and I guess I'm going to learn how to enjoy that part of it too. But I do I want to give seminars, and I think, and, and I also probably have another book in me. And uh, I wrote about the Personal Creed Project in a, a book after winning the James Moffat Award, um, f- f- awarded by the National Council of Teachers of English. And uh, in the new book, I think I'd like to include some of this developmental awareness that uh, is just not part of our public school consciousness at this point. And and maybe at least an article, at least an article, but I think a book that would incorporate some of this in my last few years in the classroom, and I think I might have three to five left, I'd like to start being more consciously working with developmental stages and uh, I, I think I'm already there intuitively, but uh, it would be great for me to uh, write about it, too. Well, let me say, John, that it is a privilege to talk to an educator with so much courage and and foresight and willingness to to do things that really bring forward the real important part of education. And, and I'm just very grateful. Do you have any last words you'd like to say to our listeners? Well... The last words I like to say to my students, uh, I like to say to them two things. Uh, I say, be inspired. Find something that inspires you. Uh, for me, oftentimes, Bob Dylan's work inspires me. And uh, whatever it is for you. <laughs> me too. Me oh, too. man, especially his last 20 Did- years. Most people don't know about his last 20 years. Most recent twenty that, years. How modern times? You like that album? Oh shit! Of course. Oh, sorry. This is we're on the air. <laughs> no, that's okay, man. <laughs> this is our podcast. Uh, that album is killer, isn't it? Oh, wow. you know, you know what song, Bob? You know what they rest? The first Dylan song. The first song they hear is "Beyond the Horizon." Unbelievable. That song's about the um, afterlife. It's about the freaking afterlife, and they love it. But anyway, uh, I say to them, be inspired. That's great. Whatever, and that's part of the World Wisdom Project, whatever inspires you, be, don't let time go by without being inspired. Stay inspired. That's the first thing. And the second thing is be bold. Take what's inspired you. Uh, take what you, what you stand for. Another way of saying your creed. Take what you stand for. Take what inspires you and be bold. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young, Our webmaster is Nathan Young, and our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Bob Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.